0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CXCast. Sam Stern joined by my colleague Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have our colleague Andrew Hogan on the line from San Francisco. Hi, Andrew. And what we want to talk to Andrew about, listeners, and have him answer an overarching question in two parts uh, for us is how do companies work with experienced design providers? Because this is uh, research, Andrew, gosh, you probably devoted the last six months of your life to doing this, uh, going really deep on what this all looks like, the landscape of the different providers you might work with, a lot of uh, abbreviations that have X in them. You're going to maybe lay that out for us and explain it, hopefully. Can you tell us maybe to start, uh, why did you do this research? and We'll jump off from there.
1: So I did this research because experience design and design, those words just get thrown around all the time. And what I found is that there were many different services firms that were using these words to describe wildly varying things. Like, you know, it was like you you heard this from companies that were doing like smart thermostats. And you also heard it from companies that were making apps. And you also heard it from companies that were designing spaces, uh, you know, stores and, and buildings. So it was clear that something needed to be done here. And then the other thing is that there's a ton of money going in this direction. There's money being devoted to the tools that to do design. There's money being devoted to hiring internal design practices. And there's also wide use of these services firms. Um, you know, we have it says half of design professionals use an agency for their projects in one form or another.
0: Okay great, so that sounds like the perfect opportunity to do a a deep dive into all the providers when there's a lot of interest, a lot of money on the table, right? So firms have a a vested interest in getting that spending right, but there's a lot of confusion on the other side. So it's harder to get it right because all of these uh, firms who offer different services and work for different types of products and in different areas are using the same terms to describe what they do. Okay, well, that makes sense. Thanks for joining us on this week on CXCast. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding, of course. Okay, great. No, that, that makes sense. That, that seems like good inspiration for the research. Why is so much money going to these firms? Because I hear from clients very often, and you know, as the culture guy, I would hear this, right? But they're often trying to hire a lot of this talent in-house and bring these types of skills, capabilities, focus areas inside the organization. We're gonna be a design-led organization, so we need to have a design team. So how do they have money left over for experienced design firms then, if they're doing that?
1: I think the answer is there's just a lot of money. And I think that you can't not have an internal design team. Um, in fact, I ran a research session with 22 brands, people working within, you know, organizations as part of our Forrester leadership boards, member meetings at the CX New York conference. And there were many members there that were working with internal design teams. That was their job. And they worked with outside firms because There were times in which that was really helpful. There were times when they needed some really special skills that they didn't maybe have internally. There were times when they needed somebody to come from the outside and really challenge what they were doing or change the way that they were approaching some sort of problem or need. And then there's also the need that sometimes, you know, you just need extra people who are good, who are skilled at the craft of design and want to bring those in. And then there's finally, sometimes you work in an organization that isn't on the same page as what you described, Sam, where they don't really get why you should have... (laughs) design, why you should devote energy to this. And sometimes you can kind of bring somebody in uh, who can help show, oh, wow, this is really valuable, these skills are really helpful, and it can kind of jumpstart design within an organization.
2: I was going to actually ask about that because I feel like sometimes it can be a proof point to show that this is valuable before you've gotten the budget to actually hire these folks in-house. But then also that's interesting what you said. So sometimes it is what you use when you don't have the internal skills to sort of make the case. But often it is used to sort of supplement or augment the internal skills that you have. Would you say that's the most common use case?
1: Yeah, I -hmm. think that's definitely. I mean, you know, we've passed the point where design is in most organizations and Mm -hmm. represented in some way. Somebody has a UX title, somebody has a CX title. That's certainly true, but it's also like that's, you know, potentially one person or five (laughs) people or, you know, just some tiny number. And so having somebody come in and augment what you're saying or maybe add a new spin to it or maybe they're really good at visualizing something that has previously just sat on PowerPoint slides in kind of a flat way, Mm -hmm. um, that's really powerful to getting other people who maybe weren't as on board that design is important and that maybe this particular project is really important yeah that makes sense
0: And, and i and i like that idea too of flexibility when you need it stretching Your team, when there's high demand or there's a big project or a skill set, as Jenny was saying, that you don't have, this allows you to have a team without then. I mean, maybe they have to hold this tension in your minds, but the design team internally doesn't literally have to do every design piece here. If we have a specialized skill that we wouldn't necessarily need all the time, well, that's a perfect reason to go outside. If we have a high design demand period, that's a perfect reason to go outside rather than hire someone and then, you know, let them go or keep them idle once that period ends.
1: Well, and then, of course, that person from the outside also has the ability to, uh, or that organization from the outside, you know, they can do some of the logistics around a workshop, they can facilitate it, they can say some things that maybe you couldn't say, which is the case for all outside consultants, but they can do it from a design perspective and they can fight for things like research that maybe you've struggled to fight for. So yeah, I I agree. It's it's a powerful uh, augment potentially in some cases.
2: So when we're talking about the relationship that it sounds like companies have with these providers, it doesn't sound like the type of relationship that sometimes we think about with an agency. We just give them a task to do, they do it, they give you whatever that deliverable is, and then they walk away, right? Because some of what you just described and we talked about, they sound like they're very embedded in the team, right? Mm -hmm. Or they have to really know the company. So I guess, can we explore the way that these companies work? Do they use that traditional model, or do they tend to be more embedded within companies? Sort of how do they fit in that agency working style and landscape?
1: Yeah, so the shorthand that I've jokingly done, and I'm going to do it here because I, I enjoy it, they're sort of on the the three espresso lunch or the three coffee lunch and not the three martini lunch. It's very different than, you know, Don Draper. Wandering off, having a moment of inspiration, and then, you know, he comes back, and uh, he's been at the movies all afternoon, no one could find him, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and then he's got his expressly, you know, wonderfully done suit and pocket square. It's not that. It's, it's a, a team of people working really, really hard with your team of people. Uh, you know, it's, it's one team. And their goal is to become more of one team for many reasons, but they just find uh, what I heard and what I heard from their clients, that these services firms find that they're much more successful when they're working as part of one large group. Because they can do things like think about then the employee experience of whatever they're creating. They don't have to just think about some sort of front end, very superficial vision of design. They can think about what's happening for the employee. So it ends up working very differently. And then they also end up changing the way that the team works internally and the way that the organization can work, where they're actually sometimes having their own, you know, as a separate part of the SOW, doing in-house guidance and training so that the organization changes to work more in sort of a design-led fashion in a more design-focused way, which is very different when you're trying to transform an organization or transform an experience versus just make an ad or make just the front end of a website. You're actually thinking about the entirety of the way that it works.
2: Sam, you must have loved that nod to the employee experience that will result (laughs) in the way to think about those.
0: Well, I think it's such a great way of Framing an idea that's been around for a little while, I think of oh, we want them to transfer knowledge and skills right. to us. But in addition to that transfer of expertise, there's also the transfer maybe back from the employee to the designers of the context of how they'd be doing the job, mm-hmm. and then in what you provide for them, providing something that is contextually aware and appropriate uh, given their their workspace and what they're going to have to do. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's it's a way to also say like these aren't people who are just have the answers or have the answers after they've watched a matinee. It's they are working collaboratively with you, employees, to figure out what the right answers are given what you would have to do to execute on what they come up with.
1: And I think one really important thing here that's actually a huge challenge for a lot of these design firms is that you have to hire very different people to facilitate the workshop versus, you know, sit on your giant monitor and lay out the perfect website. There's a real skills challenge. That's something that companies have to watch out for when they're hiring a provider to help them because that's that's just totally different. And you've got to know sort of what you need from your provider. Do you need visual design help? Do you need interaction design help? Or do you need, you know, like a, some? much higher level of product design or service design help, which requires different skills.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that as we were talking about this, As it sounds like there's a wide breadth of ways that they help a company. And as you mentioned, it was already sort of a confusing landscape with a confusing term okay. because it sounds like they help with everything. So in addition to companies thinking about what it is specifically they need, is it a specific skill set? Is it this sort of larger scale overhaul of the business? Did you come up with any, <laughs> any guidance or help or ways for companies to navigate the different experience design partners out there
1: yeah so human-centered design gets applied in a lot of ways to a lot of places and I was really focused on those companies that were providing human-centered and, and expert design skill. What I heard broadly, and I have a, a figure in the report, is that there's an axis, the axis that sort of runs from the broadest scope of change. So the, the problem that you're coming to them with is that you need to transform. You want to enter new markets. You want to have a new business model. You're looking for new types of customers. And then uh, the other side of the axis, which is absolutely right in many cases, is the deepest scope of change. So think of their like, micro-interactions at a single touch point like an app, you know, how do you want the animation to work in an app? If that's something you really want to work on, then you're looking at a different sort of provider. And I broadly sort of thought about them on this axis because that's what I heard the variation of needs as. And I also heard some real pain when some sort of uh, experience design provider was hired to think about the future of something. And it turns out that what the client really wanted was an app, or if they were asked to do an app and they just made the app and then that was it, and then it failed. So it was like there was a mismatch between what the the providers were doing and then the need. So I thought about them on this sort of axes, and then I ended up with a couple different core groups, the business design group, which was thinking about new markets, new customers, new model, business models, the convergent design group, which is bringing together you know space, service, physical design, and then the specialty designers who are doing very focused goal and sort of technology work for very specific needs, and maybe not necessarily exploring these dramatic transformations in the same way.
0: So let's just play those back uh, quickly for our listeners. The business designers, sort of at that broadest level, and then the convergent designers who focus on improving interactions, and then the specialty designers who get maybe really down into the weeds on specific requirements. Is that a fair yeah, summary? Yeah.
1: I think the way to think about convergent designers specifically is they're operating at the center of product, service, and space
0: design. Mm, And there's a
1: convergence of all of those things happening right now where it's really hard to tell them apart. But there's certainly still some heritage there for, you know, the companies designing physical products or physical bases.
0: Yeah, that's great. I I think the convergent there then makes clear yeah. sense why that's the name. You know, this for me is, is playing out like designer was a category term at, at, that you've done a good job of going more specific on, like doctor is a category term. So depending on what your ailment is, you know which doctor you need, but you want to make sure you have the right doctor for what your problem is or what your ailment is or what part of the body we're talking about, right? And similar for design.
2: So I have a question looking at these business designers, because that sounds very broad in scope. It also reminds me of some other types of partners that we hear out there, you know, such as a a customer experience consulting practice, or, you know, a myriad of companies that say that they can come in and lead business transformation. Is there something that's specific about that class of partners that's related to design or more narrowly focused than some of these other types of consultancies and businesses?
1: The way I think about this group is a lot of This group has actually grown through acquisition. You know, they were doing, uh, so somebody like McKinsey is in this group. They're a known management consulting firm with a a strong reputation. And they've made a number of acquisitions to become more of a player within the design space to add some expertise. And that sort of changes the work that they do. But the problems that they're trying to solve haven't necessarily shifted that much. The core focus hasn't shifted that much. And then similarly, what I call digital reconstruction That group has sort of generally brought together different sets of expertise or sort of grown from another area, particularly the technology implementation sort of area, although not all of them have done that. And they too, though, have often grown through acquisition and, uh, you know, combinations. Somebody like Accenture Interactive or Publis' Sapient, formerly Sapient Razorfish fits into that kind of group. So they do have some specific characteristics, mm-hmm. uh, but they tend to want to make these large-scale changes, which can be really um, sometimes either unappetizing or frustrating if that's not what you're looking to do.
2: That's interesting. So they come from a, a different heritage often yeah. than some of these other, other design, like the specialty designer, which sounds like it's probably more born out of design applications.
0: Yeah. Andrew, how have the design companies, consultancies in these uh, pieces of research reacted to your categorization? of them. And I'm asking from the standpoint of, in my experience, limited with uh, with, with vendors and consultancies in a space that kind of want to say they do everything that you're asking about. Because I think you've done a really good job of being specific about what different firms do in a way that's helpful to our readers and probably helpful to those firms. But often I, I know they resist that. So I'm wondering how that played out in your conversations with them.
1: Yeah. So uh, certainly to some degree, there's a, well, we do this and this is our core, but we also do these things too. And some of the firms have more, um, you know, clear claims or clear examples of why they should be considered for other kinds of work. Um, some of them have less clear claims and examples and it's more of a, an aspiration. Generally, they've agreed with where things are and where they've, um, kind of been put. And I'd also say that it's not like you can't hire one of the firms that's listed in the convergent design group to help you think about your business and the markets that you're in. It's not like they can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's that the, the most of their projects fit into one group or another. And I also have included, in some cases, some of these providers fit into many of these categories. And I've cautioned them that then makes them, in the eyes of potential clients, less you know, specialized or well-suited for those particular kinds of projects. But generally, the response has been, yep, this is pretty much right for the way that we think about it and i think one of the reasons is because of the acknowledgement of that convergent design group because one of the big divides is something like service design which what is and isn't service design is a major point of contention if you're doing app design right if you're doing digital product design right you're probably doing service design as well and i think that was something that helped clarify to many of these firms that this is the right way of thinking about the landscape right now i'll give you one other example there's a real tension here with what the kinds of projects that business designers and the digital reconstruction firms are being hired to do and the actual implementation of those things. So in some sense, you don't want to be in that group that's working at the highest end of the y-axis and the biggest, most broad thing. And I think that actually naturally creates kind of a bucketing where there's a realization that maybe we don't want to be at the top of the y-axis and maybe it's okay to be lower on the y-axis because it's not a, a comment about quality, it's a comment about the right fit for the right
2: job. Yeah, was like jack of all trades is master of none, <laughs> so really figure out what you do well.
0: Well, and there's a lot more client problems that define in very specific ways that are closer to the bottom uh, than yeah. at the top. The top is like, hey, we're changing the entire company who can we get great well Andrew this makes sense it's really interesting I think it would be good if we have you back for a second part and go into depth about how companies our listeners can select the right experience design partners so listeners stay tuned for that Andrew thank you and uh, we'll talk to you again next week bye everyone